Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, June 7th, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, June 5th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,754. That's 14754. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,755, 14755. This morning, A Vision for You presents, Do Slogans Carry a Message of Depth and Weight? Alcoholics Anonymous has been around for roughly 85 years, and some of the 12-step slogans and sayings have been around just as long. It's no surprise that some of these 12-step slogans have a lot of power and meaning behind them. Many of these slogans, as with other practices in 12-step rooms, such as Overeaters Anonymous, were simply passed along verbally to other members, so it's possible that some of the slogans may have originally stemmed from a part of the Oxford group movement language, or it could be that they were original sayings from Bill and Dr. Bob and the early members. It's also possible that many of these slogans may have emanated from pop culture, and are far, far from being aligned with the program of recovery as outlined in the big book, The Basic Text of Alcoholics Anonymous. Regarding slogans and other influences which may impact our message and the quality and strength of our meetings, we are all bound together by one common responsibility – The fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Our chief responsibility to the newcomer is an adequate and accurate presentation of the program of recovery. Joining us today to speak about this topic regarding slogans and whether they carry a message of depth and weight are two recovered compulsive overeaters, both from the Pennsylvania area. This morning, it's a delight to welcome Jason K. and Danelle M. to our line, and we're going to get started with Jason K. Welcome, Jason, and thank you for your service. Thank you so much, Leah, for that uh, beautiful, succinct introduction. You really hit some of the main points that we're going to be talking about. Good morning. My name is Jason Kay. I am a recovered compulsive eater and bulimic from outside Philadelphia. Um, I'm just going to qualify briefly, briefly, and then pop it over to Danelle to qualify as well. Uh, I entered the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous around uh, the year 2000 as a 20-year-old. Uh, I heard a lot of different things in the meetings. I bounced in and out of recovery in rooms of Overeaters Anonymous uh, for the next 17 years before I actually became a recovered member of this fellowship. That recovery came, uh, it'll be no surprise to people on this line, uh, from studying the big book and working the steps as outlined in the big book. So I have about two and a half years uh, of 
entire abstinence, free from my alcoholic foods, I'm maintaining uh, uh, about a 60-pound weight loss with no binging, purging behaviors in that time. And uh, I, I'll, I'll just kind of just say that really briefly. I am a real compulsive overeater. I, I, I'm very chronic, uh, multiple, multiple relapses. Uh, and I had to really, really embrace the solution in order to recover. And, and I'll just finish my little qualification here with the, the question, why am I passionate about this? Um, because I did stumble and bumble and fumble around the rooms of the fellowship, um, taking on some of these slogans, trying to practice them, becoming uh, extremely confused, uh, thinking that OA doesn't work, uh, that I'm, uh, I can't ever get this, that there's something wrong with me because I couldn't uh, get this program to work for me and I couldn't get recovered. Uh, and, and I do take this very seriously, what my message of, of depth and weight uh, that I share to a newcomer, that that is my responsibility. So um, I'll kick it over to Danelle to, to introduce herself, and we'll go from there. Great. Thanks, Jason, and good morning to my fellow visionaries. It's a pleasure and honor to be here today and do service. I'm Danelle M. from Pennsylvania, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And I'd like to start by sharing my experience in this program. I attended my first OA meeting in the early 2000s, and after that meeting, I found my home group, I used the tools, and I regularly attended meetings. Now, the meetings I attended were based primarily on the OA literature and didn't use the big book. I had a sponsor, but not somebody who was recovered. And even it, with my regular meeting attendance and using the tools, I was still in bondage to food. Food was clearly my master. I'd get a few days, weeks, maybe a month or so of abstinence, and then inevitably I'd pick up again. And I spent the next 15 years stuck in that pattern and that vicious cycle. So it wasn't until after that 15 year period of half measures that I found a vision for you. I heard a really compelling message of depth and weight for the first time I read the big book, which I had never done before. I got a recovered sponsor who guided me through all the steps as outlined in the big book, and I had a spiritual transformation. Today, I'm no longer in bondage to food. I have a wonderful relationship with God, and he's at the center of my program and my life. So nearly during the nearly 20 years that I've been in this program, I've heard many slogans. Some of them were helpful to me, others were confusing, and sometimes even distracting from the real message in the big book. So this talk is important to both Jason and I to help others avoid some of the pitfalls that we encountered in our journey in this program. We're here today to share our experience, strength, and hope so that others can benefit for it. So for the purpose of this talk today, I'd like for you to consider a slogan along the same lines as we use a tool. Slogans are memorable and catchy. Now the challenge is that a slogan needs to be fully understood and to line up with a well-defined purpose. Otherwise, you risk having a slogan that doesn't really mean or communicate anything or perhaps may even misguide someone. For example, one of the slogans that I heard many times in the room was, take what you want and leave the rest. 
Now, I didn't understand what this really meant, and I really didn't apply the intention of that slogan. Instead, I used that slogan as a justification for my compulsive behavior, and what I left out was the steps. That didn't serve me very well, and it kept me stuck in the food. So I needed to have a tool with the right purpose, right? If we continue on this analogy of a slogan with a tool, I can't just pick up a hammer and start banging it around on all the walls in my house. If I do that, I'm just going to end up with holes everywhere. I need to understand what the tool is for, how to use it, and the purpose is. So if I want to hang a picture on my wall, and I grab a nail and I use a hammer to install that nail into the wall, that's great. It served an effective purpose. But if I want to screw a lug nut in, a hammer is not really a good tool to use for that purpose. So the hammer, like a slogan, is neither inherently good or bad. Just like out of a murder mystery novel, I could use a hammer to hurt or even kill someone. Or I could use that same hammer to build homes for Habitat for Humanity for a very effective and meaningful purpose. Now, one slogan that is really helpful to me is let go and let God. As a recovered fellow, this grounds me and it reminds me that I'm not running the show. It's a gentle nudge to trust and rely on God and also the myriad of ways that I am powerless over life. Not, over, not only over food, but also over people, places, and things. The downside of this tool is that when I first heard it in the rooms many years ago, I had no clue what it really meant and how to actually apply it. So until I had a spiritual awakening from working the steps and gained a new perspective, using it, for me, was like trying to take a razor blade to cut down a tree or maybe even use a chainsaw to get a haircut. I just did not understand how to adequately use that tool or that slogan. I didn't have the perspective yet to know what to do with the tool. So that's why it's important for us to consider the message we're sharing and how we're explaining slogans, particularly to a newcomer. We aim to do that today with several examples um, of eight slogans that we've picked out. So next, Jason's going to give you a preview of what we'll cover today. Jason? Thanks, Danelle, and, and thanks for putting a few funny images in my head of, you know, cutting down a tree with a razor blade and getting a, a, a chainsaw haircut. So uh, that, that definitely <laughs> gave me a few funny images. Um, so can these slogans convey a message of depth and weight? No. So that's it. That's our presentation. No, just kidding. Of course, we're going to talk more about this. Um, what we're going to do is Danelle and I are going to talk back and forth. We did pick um, eight slogans. I thought about titling this, the only slogan you'll ever need. And what we will do at the end is we will give you the only slogan you will ever need. So stay tuned for that. It'll be fun. Uh, so Danelle and I came up with something that we think is the perfect slogan, the only slogan you'll ever need. Um, again, this talk is framed in this uh, chief responsibility and, and as an adequate and uh, accurate representation program. And again, this could also be the, the name of this talk. How do we promote and uh, take responsibility for that accurate presentation of the program? And in the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silver talks about the message that will hold an interest the alcoholic must have depth 
can wait. And this comes from our own experience when we can identify with other alcoholics. We're given this unique power, uh, this unique role to be able to connect with other uh, compulsive eaters, in our case, uh, to share this message. And just to be clear, we're not saying that slogans are bad. We're not saying that we should shun them completely. Um, Danelle and I talked about this, uh, not wanting our talk to come across as, as negative. They are trying to catch and uh, uh, they're trying to summarize uh, in a catchy way a significant truth. They may be useful as a reminder. Uh, I have a sponsor, Matt, who says, you know, these slogans, these little sayings that interrupt this habit loop, they shift a perspective, they shift our uh, attention. They bring us into a different space. Um, so Bill Wilson was also known to use a lot of different slogans in his everyday language. Uh, and in there are also in the big book at the end of the uh, chapter of Family Afterwards, there are some slogans. But we are going to examine them in the light of this question. Are they true? Are, are they in harmony with the message out of the big book? Um, are they useful or are they confusing to newcomers? Uh, and for me, is a lot, uh, one of the things is a lot of these didn't really have instructions. I didn't really know how to use these. Um, and the other question is we're considering do they distract from a message of depth and weight? Um, so again, love, loving, uh, love and tolerance is our code. So if people use slogans in the room, we want to have love and tolerance, but we want to hold that hand in hand with our responsibility to send a, a message of depth and weight, an accurate representation of the program. So uh, I'm going to kick it back to Danelle to start the slogan analysis. So I think we need a drum roll here to reveal our first slogan. I'm not gonna do it though, I don't, I don't, yes, I don't, I don't, I don't have it. Slogan number one, don't eat no matter what. So here's my experience with this slogan. There was a time in my early days in program when I found this slogan to be helpful. I vividly remember an experience grocery shopping during a time when I only had a few days of abstinence under my belt. And at the time, I urgently clung to this slogan with a death grip. I went into the store to buy some milk, which was in the back corner. And to get there, I had to pass through the bakery section. Now the sight and the smell from that bakery terrified me. I was afraid of being triggered. So as I walked past the bakery to go get to the milk, I chanted in my head over and over, don't eat no matter what, don't eat no matter what, don't eat no matter what. And it did help me in that moment. I didn't stop and pick up anything in the bakery. It was successful. But what I'd like to point out is that what I later observed throughout my years in program is that there's been an evolution in my thinking. And I no longer feel a need to grasp to that slogan so desperately. So now I'm free to walk to the grocery store without having to repeat a mantra in my head. The frantic thoughts have quieted down. And if anything, that proverbial radio station in my head plays a more soft and gentle tune. Instead, it's more quiet. And if I do hear some, some volume, it's more along the lines of, thy will, not mine, be done. It's more peaceful, it's more soothing and calming. So I invite God in every morning during my prayer and meditation time. I ask him to direct my thinking and to place my thought life on a higher plane. So I now have a new inner peace that I never knew before, and I don't feel the need to cling to that slogan with such a death grip around it. What I realize now is that 
as a recover woman, I had been misusing the slogan of don't eat no matter what. I tried to exert it like I exerted willpower not to pick up my binge food. And for me, that experience of using willpower, even in the form of a slogan, was like holding my breath. I could do it for a little while, but I wasn't able to maintain it on a permanent basis. So in the AA 12 and 12 on page 40, it tells me, our whole trouble had been the misuse of willpower. We had tried to bombard our problems with it instead of attempting to bring it into agreement with God's intention for us. So when I tried to exert a slogan through willpower, it may have worked temporarily, but it didn't have the lasting effect to remove the obsession of the mind. That's the task that, in my experience, only God can do. The big book tells me that I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. That means that the desire to eat is my default anytime I feel uncomfortable, I don't want to face something, I'm feeling some feelings, etc. So I think with this slogan of don't eat no matter what, perhaps a better way to say it is without God in the step work, you're going to eat no matter what, because that's what I truly learned from my experience in this program. Jason, what has your experience been like with don't eat no matter what? Yeah, thanks, Danelle. And, and, and I just want to point out, I think this has a positive intention. It's around a commitment, a determination that we can go through life, the ups and downs, the, you know, the low spots, the valleys. Uh, abstinent. Um, I heard this particular saying uh, on a recording, and a woman said with great conviction, you know, don't eat no matter what. And I was just enthralled. I remember being particularly taken by this idea. Um, I thought this is amazing. Yes, I have to make up my mind to not eat no matter what. Now, notice this saying doesn't necessarily have instructions in it. Um, and if you've recovered and you've studied the big book for a while, you'll know that we have a big problem around power. You know, where does the power come from to not eat no matter what? So I held on to the slogan um, with just a death grip, with a desperate sort of uh, intense desire to remain abstinent. Don't eat no matter what. Um, I was, you know, chanting it like an incantation. I had not worked the steps. I had not recovered. I did not have access to the power to carry this out. Um, for me, looking at the slogan, if I change it to no matter what I eat, uh, or no matter what I eat compulsively, that hits me in the stomach sort of on a deep core gut level that it is so true to my first step experience that, you know, whether it's sunny, whether it's raining, whether I have a job or I, you know, between jobs, whether I am in a relationship or not in a relationship, I always go back to eating compulsively no matter what. And that's the truth of my first, first step experience. Uh, and, and that immediately or, or very soon after um, sort of throws me into the truth of the second step. But, um, you know, so this type of, uh, of, of mantra, this type of slogan for me was so confusing and I failed repeatedly and I kept relying upon my mind uh, to be made up, to not eat no matter what. Um, you know, it sounds good. And, and, and again, to our point that, you know, uh, you know, we're not being judgmental here. I did this. I said these things in meetings. I tried to get behind these things. Um, so, again, it's not something that we're judging people for. Uh, but, again, we're trying to raise awareness that, you know, these types of slogans can be very, very confusing uh, to the newcomer and 
um, distract us from the truth, the truth of the matter. Um, so that's what I'd like to say about that. Um, Danelle, do you want to hit our second uh, slogan? This one's more of an acronym than a slogan. Sure. So number two is HALT, or don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Now, I want to start out by saying there's a lot of truth in this an acronym. If I am too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, I'm more likely to experience the phenomenon of craving and the obsession of the mind in these moments. It is important to be mindful and aware of that. Now, for me, the challenge was that this slogan also gave me the false perception that I could control, manage, and manipulate situations. So in some ways, I wanted to use it and exercise it like an insurance policy, thinking that as long as I don't get too hungry, angry, or lonely, or tired, I'm good. And it became about me and my performance and very little else. So I have to ask myself, where is God in that equation? And inevitably, when life throws us unexpected curveballs and through circumstances maybe that we had no control over, and we do get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, then what? Am I screwed? Am I just destined to eat again? So in HALT, tired was always my biggest trigger. And I had succumbed to the desire to eat when in a weakened, sleepless, tired state of mind many, many times. Yet in my experience, after working the steps, I've also been too tired and not picked up. And the best example that I can think of that I've experienced is when I went through childbirth. I was in extreme fatigue after 27 hours of labor. I was not able to eat or sleep during that time. And it was a whole new level of fatigue that I had never experienced before. Yet even in that condition, never once did I think, boy, I could really go for a Kit Kat bar right now. That's going to give me the energy I need to get through this. So instead, I stayed in fit spiritual condition. I trusted God and I relied on him to carry me through and I didn't pick up. So I'd like to refer to the big book on page 98 where it says, job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Burn into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. So what this tells me is that my being recovered is not dependent on circumstances in life. I can get well regardless of other people, regardless of circumstances, even regardless of myself. So in these extreme instances, like I mentioned childbirth, and Jason has a few more from his experience to show you coming up. Um, if I am too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, I still do not have to eat. If I trust in God and work the steps, he gives me the power to abstain every time. Jason, what has your experience been like with hungry, angry, lonely, tired? Yeah, thank you, thank you. And again, there's a good intention behind this. If we're clear-headed, um, if we're not, you know, engaging in these cycles of trying to starve and restrict, we might not be susceptible to that cycle, uh, the opposite side to binge, you know, so we can disengage from this. But this, this to me, is, is a very, very big distraction from 
our true message out of the big book of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and to me, it has this sense of if I could just manage well, if I could just not get too angry, you know, not look at the news, you know, not think about the fact that we're in a global pandemic and, you know, isolated, if I can just sleep right, maybe get the right, you know, sleeping pill, all these things after I've worked the steps and recovered are just nonsensical. You know, the big book talks about a couple, um, uh, and I really love that quote, Janelle, that, that we burn into the consciousness. There's only one condition upon which our recovery stands, and it's our trust and reliance upon God. Uh, and one of the quotes from the big book says that the alcoholic failed to perfect his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. He could not survive the certain trials and most lost ahead. So the, the, the book is telling us uh, life contains certain trials and low spots that we can navigate if we perfect and enlarge our spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. This is not a selfish program. That's another thing I heard in programs I'm thrown in here. These are bonus topics, so now we didn't talk about this. There's another quote that I really, really love looking at it as well, talking about um, moving away from self-reliance. It says, perhaps there's a better way than self-reliance. We think so if we are now on a different basis, the basis basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite self. And it says we're in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent we do so, do as we think he would have us and humbly rely upon him. Does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? Life is full of calamity. We're in this life of impermanence. You know, people die, people get sick, people you know, we lose jobs, we have these global pandemics, you know, if you look at the political situation, all sorts of things in the world. And for me, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired doesn't make sense. When I get angry, hungry, lonely, tired, I don't have a desire to eat compulsively. And again, a good example of calamity in my life, a good example of a trial in low spot is when my dad died a couple months ago. He had cancer, but he went downhill very quickly at the end. So at noon, I'm getting a call saying, your dad is really taking a turn from the worst. You better get here. You know, at 8 p.m., I'm on a plane to Arizona. 8 p.m. is my bedtime. I usually get up around 4 a.m. Instead, I'm on a plane. I can't sleep a, a minute on that plane. So I get um, to Arizona after a five-hour flight, and here my dad has died. I wasn't there in the end. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm distraught. I'm in shock. So I go see my mom, my sister late at night, and I say, I want to see my dad, I want to say goodbye to him, and I go in the, a hospital room to look at uh, uh, this man in his, you know, I just, I can't recognize his face, he's in a body bag, not once, not once, not once am I thinking of eating compulsively, and if we think that if we get a little angry, a little too lonely, a little tired, that we're going to be in danger of eating compulsively, we're painting this picture that we'd never survive uh, this massive uh, shock to our system, the death of our of a, of a loved one, you know, when when cancer comes to to your families, um, we're just never we have no chance. But the big book again, it's the, the message is the opposite. We will match calamity with serenity. You know, I went through this not a single thought of eating compulsively. I was up for maybe 24 hours straight, um, not a single thought, just an open uh, heart, open. Uh, you know, relying on God, uh, recovered state. And, and this is the promise. This is what we have to uh, uh, promise newcomers. This is the picture we, we paint to newcomers. 
uh, the, the strength, the freedom, uh, the power of recovery, the power of God. Um, so this is, yeah, that's what I'd like to say about that. Great. Thanks, Jason. So slogan number three, meeting makers make it. Now, meetings are important. Go to meetings. Let us affirm that. Our point and my experience here is that I use this slogan like banging a hammer all over the wall. I didn't understand the purpose of a meeting. Now, I've been to a ton of meetings in the past 20 years. It was suggested to me to do 12 meetings in 12 days, so I did that. I also did 90 meetings in 90 days, and that didn't bring about recovery for me. The only thing that I made was meetings. I didn't get recovered. So in my experience, I became dependent on this perceived meeting-based sobriety or abstinence rather than a reliance on God and doing work. For me, this approach was performance-based. I had a lot of meetings under my belt but I still had a mind full of old ideas and old beliefs. I have the mind of an alcoholic and I was still active in the disease while attending meetings. So while um, with this plethora of meetings, um, it became so monotonous for me that I phoned it in. I showed up, I had spectacular attendance, but I didn't understand the purpose of a meeting. And when I shared, I vented about things going on in my life, you know, about things irregardless of program, instead of sharing my experience with the steps or my experience with the program of recovery. Jason, how about you? What has your experience been with meeting, meeting makers make it? Yeah, this one for me was something I heard and I took very seriously. I would, in the beginning, you know, this is a progressive disease. In the beginning of my recovery, I could go to a meeting, I could share about my day, I'd feel a little bit better, and my eating would improve a little bit. Towards the end, uh, I was just dying inside from this very, very serious, progressive, fatal malady that is compulsive eating. Uh, and, and a meeting uh, and the fellowship without the program of recovery was not enough to give me a transformation. It did not it contain the necessary power. Uh, for me to abstain from eating compulsively. Um, so this really obscured the, the idea that we have a solution in the 12 steps, because I would go to meetings, we wouldn't talk about the 12 steps of recovery. We would talk about tools, we'd talk about other things, but I was not getting the necessary transformation. I was not getting well by going to meetings. Furthermore, I hated myself. I was dying inside. I couldn't stop eating compulsively. And when I was eating compulsively in the food, the sense of shame, discouragement, um, you know, self-judgment, self-condemnation, self-hatred made me not want to show my face in front of you or anyone. I was checking out with, you know, TV, going to sleep, sleeping excessively. I was not showing up at meetings. And then when I did show up in meetings, I had such resentments and fears that I couldn't even connect with the people there. So, so this, again, this, this distracts people from the real program uh, of recovery. Uh, and I think if Bill Wilson wanted us to go to a lot of meetings, he'd, you know, maybe you would have said step 13, go to a lot of meetings. Um, so, and it's just not in there. The big book says we meet so that newcomers can find us, so people can find us. Uh, and I think again, Danelle asked this question, what's the purpose of the meeting? Uh, the purpose of the meeting is to share the recovery 
uh, available to share that the, the process, the program of recovery, the program uh, without, uh, you know, the meeting without the program uh, tends to, to me to be unhealthy and, and, and not a good place uh, to go. Um, so that would be my experience to know. Uh, you wanna, do you want to talk to us about not being tasted as good as abstinence feels? Sure. So in my experience, the slogan of nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels gave me a false expectation. For me, abstinence didn't feel good. In fact, it felt awful. Um, I mean, I felt better, all right. I felt anger better. I felt grief better. I felt fear better, shame better, etc. I had spent half my lifetime not feeling my feelings, avoiding them, just anesthetizing myself with food and numbing out. So when I followed my food plan and I abstained from compulsive overeating, I no longer had that little security blanket to hide behind. And all those feelings that I had been avoiding for so many years bubbled up to the surface. And I didn't know what to do with them. And man, did they feel uncomfortable. I thought I was supposed to feel better because I kept hearing in the rooms, nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. So I thought something was wrong. Um, in my confusion, I questioned if I was doing something wrong or if program even worked. And now I know that abstinence only was the reason that I felt so awful. Once recovered, I felt my feelings, but I was no longer overwhelmed by them. And now when I have a sponsee and she tells me that she feels uncomfortable, I get excited and I say, good, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Because when we're in the step process, um, we're working through that uncomfortability. We're learning how to let go of that death grip on food and that dependence on food for that sense of ease and comfort to let go and in instead have a transformation um, brought about by a, a spiritual awakening with God. Jason, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, thank you. And I, I heard this in the, the rooms, and I try, again, I would try to take this on. Nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. And, you know, I'd have this little booklet, booklet, you know, before you take that first compulsive bite, and it's just talk about, you know, remember the consequences of eating, and nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels. And I try to think my way into this um, desire and power and ability to be abstinent. And, and it, it just never worked. And yes, abstinence for me was torture because the obsessiveness of my mind, my mental obsession to break my abstinence drove me nuts every day, day and night. I could not escape that uh, lurking thought to break my abstinence, to go abstinence, to go eat, you know, those foods, those certain foods. Uh, and it just day in and day out just wore on me. So abstinence was pure torture. And, and you know, when we recover, we're promised, you know, to be placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Uh, you know, abstinence suddenly to me becomes this just natural occurrence. Every day, you know, I eat on my food plan. I don't have this obsession to eat those foods. Uh, it, life just feels normal. And looking back from a recovered stance uh, to think about nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels this slogan doesn't exactly make much sense to me. I don't feel like I need to bring a slogan like this to mind to reinforce somehow my abstinence. I'm not making decisions to be abstinent on an abstinent on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a it's a fact of my existence. It's a you know it's normal as breathing. 
and, and, you know, my life right now today feels, you know, happy, sad, bored, terrifying, blissful. It spans the gamut of human emotions. And it's a weird uh, sort of thing to um, bring up uh, how abstinence feels, uh, relating it to those human emotions. This just does not make sense to me um, from a recovered point of view. Um, and, and so I don't see the use in this. And again, if we're feeding this to a newcomer, uh, no pun intended, you know, this is a food program. If we're giving this slogan to a newcomer, how, do they, how are they expected to use it? What are they supposed to do with it? Because again, we don't necessarily, you know, as a newcomer, we don't have the power to be abstinent. And um, again, abstinence without recovery uh, to me was pure torture. So yeah, that's what I have to say about that. So now, do you want to give us uh, number five we're on here? Five of eight? Great. So next up is a program of tools, not rules. Now for me, I spent years getting lost in the tools. Using tools is important. However, without the steps, they didn't solve the problem. So I cultivated this performance-based obsession with using the tools and did little else. And like the previous example I gave of using an X-Acto knife to cut down a tree, I didn't understand how to use a lot of the tools properly. For example, one of my go-to tools was using the telephone. And I ended up making a lot of phone calls. But what I did on those phone calls was make small talk with the person on the other line. I'd talk about current events, about things that were going on in my life, like nothing really truly germane to program. And so what have, would have been more helpful for me was to make a program call and ask somebody, what step are you working on? And then hear their experience with that step. Or maybe say, I'm on step eight right now. What has your experience been with that? Keep it fundamental tied back to the program versus just airing my grievances in life. How about you, Jason? What has your experience been with that? Yeah, I had a sponsor who told me, use every tool every day. So that meant, you know, trying to trying to hit a meeting, trying to, you know, call this sponsor who we're not working with that, trying to practice the tool of anonymity. How the heck do I practice that on a daily basis? Writing, I'm sitting here journaling, you know, trying to understand you know, obsessively understand my feelings. I'm reading literature to get inspired because if I get inspired, then maybe I'm not going to eat compulsively. Um, but the big book, you know, the piece of literature that you read and it's like a cookbook. It has steps. Follow the steps, you get a product. Uh, you know, you wouldn't read a cookbook to try to get inspired and, and hope a meal came. But I would read, you know, literature because it was a tool like the big book and say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, but I wouldn't follow the instructions. So, so for me, the tools and, and uh, just um, talk, obsessive talk of, or, or, or constant talk about tools locked me off from the, the focus of our program to work the steps as outlined in the big book. And, and to me, it was a distraction uh, and it gave me this sense of, you know, and I did the same thing as you did. Now, I, I, I obsessively, I had to make a certain number of calls. I had to set a timer and write. You know, and what did that writing do for me? I don't know. I didn't keep me abstinent um, for sure. And, and again, the, the tools today are used in, in service of, of this 12 steps of recovery. I can pick up a phone and call a newcomer. I can write uh, inventory on a piece of paper. I can go to a meeting and share a message of depth and weight. Um, so so it's, it's about keeping these tools in, in context 
in, in service of working the steps uh, and really keeping, my hope would be to keep that message uh, strong. Uh, but you know, Danelle, it is progress, not perfection. So you know, we we you know we try our best. That's right, progress. <laughs> so, <laughs> this slogan is probably one of the most misused in the program. It does come from the Big Book. However, people often misquote it by omitting a key word. It is spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. So on page 60 of the big book, it says, we are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principle we have set down are to guide progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So I use this direct quote from the big book to ask myself, am I making progress in growing in my relationship with God? in my prayer and meditation time, in step 11, et cetera. Not, am I making progress with my abstinence? Not in doing half of my step work, which was the case for me for many years. And the big book reminds me that half measures avail nothing. Somehow I got the wires twisted in my brain and heard half measures avail half results. And that was not the case, they availed nothing. So I misused this slogan as a license to be sloppy with my food. And I think that's the danger behind misquoting it. Jason, what would you add to that? Yeah, and I, I heard this uh, also. And I think that the, the super positive intention of this is that, you know, we don't kill ourselves with shame, self-hatred, and unrealistic expectations that we, you know, we know that we're striving for these ideals. Um, we're not saints. Uh, but I would I would take this to mean, you know, I binged last night, but I'm not going to beat myself up for it. You know, that's progress for me. Um, you know, I binged last night, but, you know, I didn't throw up. That's progress. That's progress, not perfection. Not knowing that I was just so caught in this vicious cycle, you know, that this, this quote of progress, not perfection, uh, really uh, applied in that way was kind of damaging to me, keeping me caught up in this uh you know, uh, this cycle of, you know, a little bit better abstinence, but not entire abstinence, certainly not freedom. And I, I picked out a couple quotes, uh, because I think, um, I think this slogan has some potential um, with a few additions. But here in um, working with others, the, the book says the alcoholic must demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful, regardless what anyone says or does. Of course, we all fall much below this standard many times, aka progress, not perfection. But here's an important part. We must try to repair the damage immediately, lest we pay the penalty by a spree. And another part of the book, talking about forming an ideal for our, our relationship life and sex conduct, says, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. You know, think of this as well. Suppose we make progress, but we're not perfect. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half truth. It depends on us and our motives if we are sorry for what we have done, have the honest desire to let God take us to better things. We believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lessons. If we're not sorry and our conduct continues to harm people, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. Now, if we took that slogan and incorporated some of these key concepts uh, of these last two paragraphs, we'd say progress, not perfection, but make amends, be willing to be changed, 
move forward or else you may relapse. To me, that's a whole different message. Um, and it takes into account such deep, deep principles of willingness to be changed, moving forward on a different basis, trust and reliance on God. Um, so, so again, just I like to contrast the, 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 those quotes and the quote Danelle shared with this little pithy slogan and just try to see that difference and, and the significance in the message. Um, so Danelle, what time did you get up this morning? <laughs> right. That leads us into the person with the longest abstinence is the one who got up earliest this morning. So for me, I am misunderstood what this slogan was intended to mean. It was misleading. And I felt this sense of fear as if every day is one of a frantic effort, like running from a saber-toothed tiger, having to claw my way to the top to abstain versus when I had a spiritual awakening as a result of working the steps, abstinence in recovery feels more peaceful and not so strenuous. So I still need to do the work and stay in 10, 11, and 12 every day. But the big book tells me that I relax and take it easy. I trust in God. And now when I hear this slogan, instead I have a different imagery in my head. And I think more about the fact that I'm not better than or worse than anybody and there's no hierarchy in the program so it took on a different meaning for me once i had the perspective of being recovered jason what has your experience been there yeah i'm i'm an early riser so i like this one i think we're just going to stick with it um, <laughs> no no i'm I'm just kidding of course and i think for me this one uh, as well paints this picture of any day is a day that i may eat compulsively yet the big book talks in in, in a number of different spots about permanent sobriety, sobriety, and nothing so much will ensure immunity from drinking. Uh, and, and, and the big book paints a picture of freedom, of this ability to go anywhere, to go to even the most sordid spots on earth, if we have the right motives, and if we are spiritually fit. And um, for me, to look at somebody who's been abstinent for 20 years, 25 years, they've um, attempted to sponsor, and they've sponsored, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people you know, they're devoted to service. That's different than me uh, waking up early, early in the morning because I had this intense heartburn uh, because I binged the previous night, um, but I'm abstinent that day. When I'm abstinent that day one, waking up at three in the morning with that intense heartburn hung over from a huge binge, I may be able to make it through that day. But if I'm not working the steps, I'm on some extremely shaky ground. Uh, and to me, the big book doesn't support this idea. And again, I think the true intention is humility. Like we're all on the same page, um, but I think it, it's also not really um, in harmony with the message out of the big book. So Danelle, what do you have for keeping it green? And this is our last slogan and we're getting close to revealing the only slogan you ever need. Attention builds. So keeping it green. Um, when I heard this slogan in a meeting, it was, it was um, along the lines of making a list of the consequences of my eating, the devastation, the destruction, the weight gain, the feeling lethargic, the bloated belly, the discouragement, the sense of hopelessness, et cetera. So I did that. I made those lists. I posted them on re my refrigerator. I wrote sticky notes. And the problem for me with that approach was that I still had the mind of an alcoholic. 
and there's this mental blank spot and the strange mental twist. So when I experienced the phenomenon of craving and it struck, I was without defense. I'm powerless. Like I even taped that list to my refrigerator. And when I was experiencing the phenomenon of craving, that didn't stop me from putting my hands on the handle of that refrigerator, pulling the door open and going to town with my binge foods. Um, there was always another reason that I could convince myself to pick up. And I always told myself in delusion, I'll start again on Monday. I'll get back on my diet and my food plan next week. And now in recovery, when I hear keep keeping it green, I don't think about the consequences of eating so much as I think about how can I carry the message and keep that fresh, you know, by doing experience, by sharing my experience, strength, and hope, and sponsoring. It just takes on a different perspective. Jason, what about you? Yeah, thanks. I had so many lists, so many lists I'd uh, make of the consequences. You know, keep it green. Remember what it looked like. Um, you know, to eat compulsively. I talked about the weight gain, the money I spent, the digestive issues, the, you know, the purging. You know, I got in a car accident once because I was eating a hot, piping hot piece of pizza and slammed into a car in front of me. Um, but, you know, the big book says on page 24, there is a solution, the almost certain consequences that follow, taking even a glass of beer, or in our case, one bite of our compulsive food, does not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There's the complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hands on a hot stove. So I, I took this to mean like, think of the consequences, keep it green, remember that. This will give you motivation to keep you abstinent. And in, in fact, again, without working the 12 steps, this type of thinking was not sufficient. It didn't have the strength. So this type of, of, of thinking of, you know, keep it green, remember. Um, you know, so today, what do I remember? I, I sometimes reflect on my first step experience. I work with newcomers and I identify with them because they're struggling with uh, these uh, issues of compulsive eating. I tell my story to newcomers and I talk about, you know, what it was like. But I talk about not so much the consequences in terms of keeping it green. I talk about the nature of this disease and the nature of what we're struggling with and suffering from. Uh, and, you know, uh, I look back at some of those lists and, you know, again, it was a, a version of trying with self-will to um, get myself to um, not take that first bite. And I did not have the power to do that. So that's what we have for the slogans. I'm excited to get to questions. We're going to give you, this is just Danelle's uh, and, uh, and our best attempt at the only slogan you'll ever need. Uh, and again, we do need the drum roll for this. Um, uh, so the, the slogan we came up with is, work the steps as outlined in the big book with someone who has done the same in order to have a revolutionary spiritual experience so that you may gain access to the power to overcome the progressive fatal disease of compulsive eating, then spend the rest of your life growing and understanding and effectiveness while passing the experience on to others. So uh, it's not so pithy. Um, we probably <laughs> we, we, we don't think it's going to be taken up and repeated in meeting after meeting. Um, and, and, and it's kind of a joke. We're doing this tongue in cheek. We want to say, you know, these slogans have that, that, you know, it's 
difficult to convey uh, this deep message of, of depth and weight in these uh, in these slogans. So that's what we have. That's this is our Janelle. Did you have any uh, final final thoughts before we open it for questions? I was just going to piggyback off of that and say we are not a glum lot. I hope you can appreciate the humor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So that's what we have. We hope it's helpful. And uh, I think Leah is going to open it up for questions now. Indeed. Thank you so much, uh, Jason and Danelle. Thank you for this outstanding presentation and for clarifying some of the more commonly misunderstood slogans that we hear in and outside the rooms. Thank you for your compelling presentation. Very helpful. Um, I, w I was trying to guess your 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 final slogan there and. My my guess was it works. It really does. Which oh, is actually nice. what you said, right? Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It does. All right. Perfect. Perfect. So Jason and Danielle's uh, Danielle's contact information will be given at the conclusion at, of this recording. So stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. I'll need I'm your. Pardon me. I have a question. Okay, one moment, one okay. moment. Thank you for your eagerness. I will say at this point, share ID for this presentation, 14,767. That's 14767. And, yes, we will transition to a question and answer segment. Star 1 to unmute. I need your first name, including the first letter of your last name. And the gentleman that spoke up, your name, please. Marcy S. Composo over oh, here from New Jersey. Mar okay, my apologies. Marcy S. Okay. Pete B. Pete B. I missed someone in there. NWH. Okay. <coughs> Franny K. Franny K. Ken W. Who else? KDF. KDF. Do L. Do L. Gotcha. Do. Sydney. Sydney. L. L. Perfect. Let's go with that group. So I have Marcy S. Ken W H. Pete B. Franny K, Du L, Katie F, and Sydney L. So let's get started with you, Marcy S. You miss Leo E. Marcy S, please. Oh, hi, this is Marcy S. Composed over here, grateful for New Jersey one day at a time to be absent. I have a question. Was this a special focus meeting? The title of the presentation, Do Slogans Carry a Message of Depth and Weight? So something related to that topic, please, Marcy, thank you. I just want to know what a special focus meeting is on Sundays. Yes, we offer special edition meetings on Sunday mornings and uh, on a variety of recovery-related subject matter. Today, we focused in on some slogans and whether they are aligned with the big book. Would you like to ask a question related to the presentation we just heard? No, thank you. I'll pass. 
Okay, thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Okay, so let's move on now to Ken W.H. Thank you so much. I do have a question. Um, For the first thing, just as a a brief comment, it does not say in the big book anywhere, progress, not perfection. It says we claim progress rather than. They are not uh, mutually exclusive opposites. That is just one thing that's been uh, changed in the process of using that slogan. But my question is, have you ever considered or thought that there might be just a different way to read the um, big book, how it works part, to change the emphasis, i.e., the principles we have set down our guides to progress rather than our uh, guides to progress. Uh, we are not, and, and then we aim uh, for perfection, but it's that we, we pro- progress and claim progress. We progress and more, more of an active sense to it. How do you think about that? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. And, and yeah, thanks. Janelle, do you want to tackle it first? Yeah, so this is a direct quote from the big book. And the point that we wanted to drive home with this particular slogan is that it's often misquoted. Rather than progress, not perfection, what's been omitted when the quote has been misused is it's spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So myself and perhaps others use that as a justification to pick up the food when your food was sloppy. And we said, I said it many times myself in meetings, oh, I binged last night, but my binge wasn't as bad as some of the last ones. And I would hear somebody comment to me later saying, oh, don't worry about that, honey. It's progress, not perfection. You're doing better, so it's okay. So we just wanted to make sure that our chief responsibility is an accurate representation of the big book to the newcomer. So the emphasis there was really on spiritual progress versus anything else. Yeah, and I just want to add, thank you for the question. And and this is the type of, you know, uh, analysis where we're really studying what was the message out of the big book? What did Bill Wilson really mean? And there's a healthy debate that goes on with this. Um, But I think when Bill Wilson wanted to emphasize things, he put it in italics. And the more we try to take our own spin on things uh, and emphasize you know, this or that, or we, we kind of say, well, the book says this, but, you know, I'm going to do it this way, the more we get away from our original message. And if every sponsor, you know, did that along the line, the next line of sponsorship would have a little bit different message, a little bit different message, and then our program wouldn't resemble the program out of the big book. But, but I, I, like, I like your question, though. I like the, you know, I like the way you're thinking of it. Yes, thank you, Ken WH, for your question this morning. And Pete B, it's your turn. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for your service. I really appreciate it. My name's Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered today by God's grace and mercy. Jason, Danielle, that's a great presentation. Uh, Clearly, you put a lot of thought into it and preparation, which we greatly appreciate. And I think it's an excellent start. And I just wanted to... um, I just wanted to get, you know, on several, on several of the references that you made, you pointed to where our book says that or our book, right? The book that 
Bill Wilson co-authored with the rest of the, uh, I don't think it says by Bill Wilson. It doesn't say Alcoholics Anonymous by Bill Wilson. But in any case, in any case, you've referenced on several occasions that um, our, our, our sobriety, our recovery depends upon our relationship with uh, our higher power. That, that, that it should depend on no one. And I'm wondering what you're, based on that, what your thoughts are on the saying that this is a we program versus a we fellowship, where it clearly says that, you know, we or we not, I still have this fatal disease and I still will suffer with you or without you. And my dependence must come from a higher power. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that saying, this is a we program. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Pete. We appreciate this, and uh, uh, yeah, we appreciate your feedback. I I think that's a great question. Uh, for me, I um, it, it, it's a delicate balance because you know there is such thing as AA lo- loners, internationalists, people that don't have access to the fellowship yet still somehow manage to recover with this connection to God and to God alone. I need people uh, when I uh, most need God. Uh, I'm, I'm often disconnected from God. You know, I can't get uh, in touch with God. I'm, I'm resentful. I'm selfish. I'm fearful. That connection's not open. So I can call, you know, hey, Pete, can you help me? Uh, uh, but we kind of lock arms and point towards God. I can't depend on you, Pete, or Danelle, because, you know, Danelle, you know, she's real selfish sometimes, and she, you know, raises her kids and has a husband and goes to work. So she's not available to help me. You know, so it, it really depends first and foremost on that relationship to God. But if you look through history at religious movements, uh, um, you know, people seek the support uh, of other like-minded people to get us towards God. So it, it, it's, it's a hand-in-hand thing. I don't think it's an either-or. Um, you know, if I was in a cave uh, in the Himalayas meditating, I, I, I'd hope, you know, I'd have that connection with God and no access to um, my alcoholic foods, you know, no hog and dog ice cream up there. Um, but I, I sure would get, you know, miss you guys. So. You know, do you have anything on that? Yeah. Great question, Pete. I really appreciate you making that distinction and clarification. And I believe it's both. It is a we program and we have a dependence on God. So Jason articulated it way better than I could have, but the way I envisioned it is that, like it says in our big book, we are hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, and together we're pointing our attention and our focus towards God to recover. Thank you, Pete B., for your question. Franny K., it's your turn. Star one to unmute, Franny. Yeah, yes, good morning. I apologize. Uh, thank you for your service, uh, Jason and Danelle. Um, thank you so much. What would you say to me, um, uh, who is today at, God willing, day 21, if I make it through today, of crossing the threshold? I'm on the pink cloud. Um, but this time it feels different. Um, many of you may know my name as having rum, uh, gone through such loving sponsors in this program on this line. And uh, I finally, uh, May 17th, in a 12-step workshop in my area, 
found someone who I just, I don't know, it was just time for me. So that is my question to you. Uh, after falling hundreds and hundreds of times, thinking I could do it another way, I have finally uh, given up. So I have a healthy fear. I have a healthy fear because I've fallen so many times. And I'm going to pass and let you two um, fellows share your experience. Thank you. Now, do you have anything for that? Yeah, thank you for the question, Franny. I'm not sure that I thoroughly understood it. Um, I'll do my best, and if I'm off the mark of what you're looking for, please jump in and let me know. I heard you mentioned having a healthy fear, you know, kind of this pink cloud experience on day 21. And so I'm not sure if your question is, is that the, the fact that you're experiencing this healthy fear uh, normal, if you will, or to be experienced, if you will, um, what I can share is to relate it to my own experience is that I did have a healthy fear and I still do in some regards. Um, but what that healthy fear looked like has been different for me as I went through my journey and evolved, you know, into a, a recovered state of mind and, and being. So initially in my early days, especially even when I had a couple of days of absence under my belt, it felt like this intense. Uh, death grip kind of experience of a fear. And with time and with more experience in the steps and working deeper and deeper into recovery, that intensity of the fear has, the volume has kind of dialed down for me. I still have a healthy fear, right? I need to respect the fact that I have the mind of an alcoholic. I have the obsession of, of the um, mind and the allergy of the body. So if I rest on my laurels, I'm going right back into the food, right? I can't just completely check out um, and, and not do the work, but that fear doesn't feel so all-consuming anymore. It's, it's kind of in its place with just a healthy regard to be reminded that, yes, I am powerless over food, and without the steps and without the power from God, I'm going to go right back. Jason, anything to add to that? Yeah, nothing on that, but I resonate with your, where you're at, Franny, so feel free to call me if you want to check in more. Thank you, Franny, for your question. Do L, uh, your turn. Do star one to unmute, please. Good morning. Thank you so much, Leah. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I just want to say, Jason, Danielle, uh, excellent, excellent, excellent presentation. I was, uh, I was thinking as you guys were talking, um, how you described the newcomer as someone very sick and very much in pain and very much suffering from compulsive eating. And um, my question is, if, if not the slogans, right? Because um, we know that, of course, they have to go through step one and entire abstinence and, and trying to get them through that step and trying to get them through the entire abstinence is, is work in itself. What do you suggest um, for the early newcomer um, to do as they're moving through that step and they're moving towards entire abstinence? Yeah, uh, great, great question. Um, there is this vulnerable time, I think, of a newborn baby deer 
they're in these sort of uh, wobbly phase, uh, maybe a little bit uh, vulnerable. Um, you know, uh, on the big book says it's a really interesting quote. It's kind of hidden in the, I think it's in the family afterwards. It says that even though your men may exhibit a certain amount of neglect, uh, to the family, it's best to let him go as far as he'd like in helping other alcoholics. It says in the first days of his convalescence, this will do more to ensure sobriety than anything else. I, I think we have to remember it's a, uh, a program of service and getting out of ourselves. So if we have newcomers, a person who's just getting abstinent, and we've really, you know, identified with them, we've made a connection and they're abstinent and they're working the steps. Uh, it, it's best to get them helping other people, calling other people, making connections. Um, if they have two days of abstinence and they're new and they call up a newcomer and say, I'm brand new. I just didn't start in this thing. That's powerful. I can call somebody who's new and say, you know, I lost all this weight and it's two and a half years and they, they cannot fathom, you know, two and a half years without eating their, their binge food. So, so I, I like that quote. It's like a little hidden gem. Um, but our program truly is about helping others, and I don't think it's uh, ever too soon to get a newcomer or somebody new thinking, uh, trying to support somebody else and outside of themselves. Uh, Danelle, did you have anything? Yeah, thanks, Jason. I, I completely concur with all of that. Um, what I would add to it, because do it is a really good question, um, during that vulnerable stage in those early days, for me, program was as much about learning as it was unlearning, you know, the old ideas, the old beliefs I had. So um, to aid in that process, just on a practical, pragmatic level, I needed to hear that message of recovery, that strong, compelling message of depth and weight as much as possible. Um, I just kind of saturated myself in it and I was constantly either in a meeting, um, if not face-to-face -face, and virtually on the telephone, or I had my earbuds in all the time and I was listening to OA podcasts and recordings of a special edition. And I just do it all throughout my day while I was driving in the car, you know, when I was at home doing the laundry or washing the dishes, like I just needed my brain to really recalibrate in that message and let it saturate. And especially in that early, like, vulnerable stage, that's on a practical, pragmatic level, that's what I found to be helpful. Thank you, Du, for your question. We'll move on now to Katie F. Good morning. This is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater. <clears throat> Thank you so much for your presentation. You all did a really awesome job. Um, I guess my question would be, because I know that people can grab on to the most negative thing or to the lowest denominator um, and try to use that, is how do you suggest that um, your sponsees use the tools? So that's my question. Um, so I can just jump in. Um, I don't talk about the tools very much. Uh, I tell them, you know, to listen to a podcast, to call me at this specific time. I talk about, you know, their, their plan of eating and, and their definition of abstinence. Um, I'll tell them to, you know, send me in an email their definition of abstinence and their food plan. 
the tools are all in I mean, they'll call me at a certain time. They'll send me an email. You know, if they're not technically savvy, we'll discuss things over the phone. You know, we'll pick, figure out, you know, if I say, you know, if they're local and I say we're going to meet at this meeting and we're going to talk about the steps afterwards, you know, I don't have to tell them their tool to get to the meeting as a vehicle. Uh, and, and I don't have to give them any instructions. If I, you know, tell them to write a fourth step, I don't have to, you know, tell them about paper and pen. So the tools are sort of inherent in, you know, if I tell them to look up a special edition, you know, I'll give them the website if they need help, but it's always in service of the message of the 12 steps of recovery uh, and the tools sort of come naturally uh, to support us through that journey, if that makes sense. Thank you, KDF. Danelle, did you want to add to that, or shall I move on? Yeah, I would just agree with everything Jason said. I take a similar approach where the tools are more of a byproduct versus the focus. So, for example, I would give a sponsee an assignment of reading the doctor's opinion. So there's literature, there's that tool. And then I would say, write down your thoughts you know, your reflections on the doctor's opinion. There's a second tool. And then I would say call three people and share that with them. So there's a third tool. So it's not really the focus as much as it is a byproduct. All right. Well, thank you, Katie F., for your question this morning. And Sydney L., your turn. Hello. Can I be heard? I hear you well. Hi, this is Sydney L, compulsive overeater in Kansas. Um, my question today is, you know, the slogan, let go, let God. I'm just wondering what the spiritual awakening looks like for you guys, um, or in your day-to-day, -day, what your spiritual uh, prayer and meditation looks like. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, and I, I like this slogan, let go, let God, and let go in general. And I was listening to this uh, AA speaker, Sandy Beach, uh, and his, he said the whole program can be boiled down to let go. And, and, and as Leah sort of suggested, uh, what would be our only slogan, that thing that summarizes the, the program? Uh, and I was listening to this, and I was kind of befuddled because I'm not, I wasn't sure what he meant by that. And then he said, what puts us in the best a position to be able to let go and let God is working the steps. And then I said, oh, okay, well, the instructions are working the steps. I'm extremely pragmatic. I'll wake up in the morning. I have a 12-minute meditation. I'll do five minutes of prayer. I have a list. I'll read the uh, on awakening. Uh, I'll send in uh, a nightly review an email, and these are steps 10, 10 and 11, uh, I'll send a nightly review and inventory uh, on a daily basis. I'll call people. I'll work with sponsors. I try to be a, a always working at least one person through the steps on a day-to-day -day basis. And I move through life with a certain intentionality, you know, trying to constantly remind myself I'm no longer uh, running the show, um, praying, you know, uh, throughout the day and making calls to do 10 steps, you know, if I get caught up in resentment and fear. Um, selfishness and worry. For me, I'm extremely pragmatic. I, if I can see it and do it, that's helpful for me. If I think some thoughts like, oh, just let go, Jason, let go and let God, I'm usually stuck and stumbling 
um, so I'm pretty pragmatic. I'll call somebody, I'll discuss the defects, I'll pray with them, I'll seek to make amends, I'll make a commitment to those amends, I'll try to turn my thoughts towards love and service of others. Very pragmatic. Uh, Danelle, do you have anything to add? Sure. So great question, Sydney. I would say for me, let go and let God just becomes a way of life, a lifestyle more than a mantra. So just on a more granular level, um, to me, it's imperative to start my day as soon as I wake up with my prayer and meditation time, because I know that once I come in contact with another human being, you know, even if it's somebody in my own family in my house, and if my mind is not focused on the program steps, it's you know, it all goes off to hell in a handbasket. So I always start my day with that prayer and meditation time. Um, the, the practice that I have taken is to do um, a series of the literature prayers from um, AA. I do the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, the 11th step prayer. Then I might have something free form, um, you know, custom or specific for whatever, you know, is relevant in that day or that season of my life. I always ask God to direct my thinking, um, just like it says in our literature, to divorce my thinking from those four major character defects of selfish, self-seeking, dishonesty, and frightened. And I trust that whatever is going to come up, God's going to take care of it, you know, and it doesn't mean that it, it, it runs lawlessly, you know, resentment does crop up, fear does crop up. But now I'm, I'm equipped with knowing how to handle those things. I'll do a 10 step throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, I have my nightly review um, and an 11 step time. So um, it just becomes more of a way of living uh, versus a mantra that I'm saying in my head. Thank you, Sydney L., for your question. And time allows for two more questions this morning. Who else has a question? This is Sarah Hi. C. Hi. Sarah C. And the next. Hi. Can you hear me? I didn't catch your name. Teresa M. And, and Teresa M. Okay. Perfect. Let's start with Sarah C., please. Leah, can you hear me? This is Sarah. Sarah C. Sorry, I was having I thought I was muted and then I wasn't. So um thank you so much for this presentation. I do uh want to point out one thing for me as a person who um is anorexic and also uh an overeater, that the expression no matter what don't eat is is music to this little anorexic's ears. <clears throat> and how dangerous that expression really is for some of us in programs. And my question to both of you is, I'm part of a face-to-face -face fellowship where recently there was a workshop on sponsorship and there was agreement, I wasn't there, but I was told this, that there was agreement that if you're a sponsor and you're in the food, it's fine to keep sponsoring because there are so few sponsors. And I hear it all the time in my face-to-face -face meetings that, yeah, I was in the food for four days last week. And when I say, well, what step are you on? They tell me they're on step nine and they're still sponsoring. And when I say, don't you kind of feel like this is the blind leading the blind? And maybe the reason that there aren't any sponsors is because nobody's really recovered. I am met with daggers and that I'm just too 
compulsive about my compulsive eating. And I just find it harder and harder to be a part of the face-to-face community, at least in my area, because there is such massive denial and an unwillingness. I talked to somebody this past week who was um, in the food and her, you know, there's just always a reason, you know, divorce, and, and my response is it's life on life's terms. So I don't want to go on except to ask you how you deal if you see this in face-to-face meetings and how you keep an enthusiasm to carry a message when your message may be in a minority and in some cases not wanting to be heard. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, and, and I'll just try to say that, you know, if you're if you're carrying this message it's important to talk about, you know, your own experience. It's important to talk about um, what's in the big book and, um, you know, to, to not come at people from a place of better than or moralistic judgment. But if you're sharing um, this particular message, you may take slack for it because you're going against some of the conventions and some of the norms. I know for me, when I'm in the food, uh, I, I'm, I'm not... Uh, connected to God, uh, and I haven't had a spiritual awakening if I'm binging and purging. Uh, so I'm, I'm not fit to carry a message. I, you know, that to me makes perfect sense. I'd be willing to share that in a, in a meeting. Um, maybe there's somebody who needs to hear that message in that meeting, uh, and maybe you are uh, that uh, uh, voice of strength. Janelle, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I completely agree with that, Jason. And I would just say that, Sarah, I I appreciate the question. And I can also identify in with your experience. Um, For me, when I've been in situations like that, I've had to really get contemplative in my prayer and meditation time and even do some 10 steps around it because I realized that even though I'm well-meaning and intentioned of carrying the message, if I have an expectation on how that message is going to be received, then, you know, there's something going on there with me, right? So our job is to carry the message, which is just giving the input, right? Sharing your experience, strength, and hope, and not the output of how people are going to receive it. Like that, that part of how they're going to receive it is none of my business. So I've just realized when I've had those frustrations, which could you know, easily build up into resentment. I usually do a 10 step and look at it and say, did I do my part, which was carrying the message of experience, strength, and hope. And then, you know, whether people are receptive to that or not, unfortunately is none of my business. I I did the footwork. Thank you very much, Sarah C for the question. And our final question for the morning comes from Teresa M. Hi, everybody. I'm Teresa. Um, I am definitely an overeater and um, compulsive eater. I'm very new. Um, I haven't, I've probably been to maybe 10 meetings um, so far, but um, the question, I, I just want to thank you both. This is great. Um, a great, great insight. Um, my, my question to you is I don't know how to pick a plan. Um, and I could, I, I just don't know how to figure out which foods to be abstinent from because it seems like I can eat anything um, compulsive, and it scares me that I'm not going to 
I get so much enjoyment from food that it scares me that I can't. So anyway, I'm just wondering what you do in the beginning. Because it's yeah, going to be so yeah. many different, there's so many different plans. Or yeah. Something, so yeah. that's all. Thank you, Teresa. Well understood. Go ahead. Thank you. Yes. Yes, and I would just say it makes a hundred percent sense to a, a, a fellow compulsive eater. It's a scary, challenging place. I think it, there takes um, for me. There's a certain individual sort of assessment of what um, each person's uh, eating behaviors and uh, uh, binge foods are, and then a, a, a mutual sort of agreement on what abstinence means for you. Um, so we, we would do that maybe one-to-one, so feel free to follow up with me after for a more in-depth answer. But it, 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 you have to, for me, I looked at my food history and what I did when I was eating compulsively, the foods I went to, and those substances and those behaviors that stimulated a phenomenon of craving that I couldn't stop and that I would binge, uh, therefore binge and lose control. Uh, and I had to cut those things out uh, 100%. Uh, that being said, it, it is a little bit more nuanced when you really get down to specifics. But, um, Danelle, sorry, I went first just about every question. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I would just add, Teresa, as a starting point, OA does have a pamphlet called A Dignity of Choice that helps you sort through some of those details. Uh, for me, I partnered both with my sponsor and um, a dietitian to determine what was going to be inbounds and outbounds for me and how I determined my abstinence. Um, but if you'd like, our phone numbers are um, going to be given at the conclusion of this talk. So feel free to follow up with me, me or Jason um, after, the, after the call. Thank you, Teresa, for your question. And thank you, Danelle M. and Jason K. for giving so much of yourselves this morning. Thank you for a very well-prepared and thought-provoking presentation on the slogans. Appreciate your service this morning. Again, the share ID, 14,767-14767. We're going to close from page 164. Of course, you'll notice that it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.